everybody to another episode of the talking space podcast this is talking space episode 710 for the week of monday september 21st 2015 i'm sawyer rosenstein and joining me tonight is gene mcculka welcome gene batteries to power turbines to speed let's let her go <laughs> yes indeed welcome as well cassie tamanini aka craftless great to be here tonight and welcome as well mark ratterman hey everybody Short, simple, and to the point. I like it. Uh, so then let's hop right into things here because we got a lot of stuff to talk about tonight. And our first thing that we have to talk about tonight uh, kind of relates to a story that we were talking about last week. You may have heard that there was a proposal for ULA, United Launch Alliance, to be bought out by a company called Aerojet Rocketdyne. Well, it turns out Boeing has had a say in this as well. And, uh, well, they pretty much rejected the offer. Right, Gene? Yeah, it's pretty much what we were talking about last week, Sawyer. Uh, just to fill folks in very rapidly on this, Aerojet Rocketdyne put out a bid for about $2 billion to literally buy United Launch Alliance. United Launch Alliance has had its share of bumps in the road, and they put an unsolicited bid out for about $2 billion to buy the company outright from the two partners, Boeing and Lockheed Martin. From what I gathered, Lockheed Martin was sort of ambivalent on the whole thing. But Boeing basically just came out last week and said, uh, no, we don't we're, we're not going to go for this. Uh, to quote a Reuters article here, the unsolicited proposal for United Launch Alliance is not something we seriously entertain. Close quote. A spokesman for Boeing by the name of Todd Bleacher had indicated Boeing said that it remained committed to ULA and its business and continued leadership in all aspects of space, as evidenced by the agreement announced last week with Blue Origin. And to fill people in, Blue Origin did announce that they were creating closer ties with ULA in the bid to try to keep the BE-4 engine, which is going to go ahead and replace essentially the RD-180 engine that's currently used uh, on the Atlas V. Now, the RD-180 is we are importing from Russia, and of course, I'm not going to get into that because we've gone over that ground before. But it looks like that deal between Aerojet Rocketdyne and United Launch Alliance is pretty much shot, although Aerojet Rocketdyne is still trying to keep hope alive and uh, has declined to comment on anything that Boeing is saying. So I'm not too sure if this really slams the lid on things, but... It's darn close, and uh, I think it was one last Hail Mary on the part of Aerojet Rocketdyne to assure its AR-1 engine had a seat. But we'll see what happens as we go forward with this and see if this slammed the lid on this whole deal or not. So just stay tuned. 
I mean, this always seemed like it was going to be a big deal when it was, you know, mentioned that this was a possibility. It's huge because United Launch Alliance obviously has a huge chunk of the launch market when it comes to the space industry. Because when you think of who's launching, you've got, you know, the Russian launches, you've got ULA with their rockets, uh, even, you know, the Ariane. So there's not too many players out there launching rockets. So if they were bought out, that would have been a big deal. Yeah, you alluded to Russia. They also contract here through a company called, I believe, International Launch Services, which actually underwrites or provides the rides, if you will, for the Russian vehicles. You've got, of course, United Launch Alliance, which now has to do something that they've never had to do before, which is literally market their services. And I believe, Sawyer, they're going after more of the commercial market rather than the defense market at this point, because they see SpaceX basically trying to take that market away from them. Uh, SpaceX is still a a key player, and uh, everybody seems to be responding to them there. Forgive me for throwing a little politics into this, but they're getting to be like the Donald Trump of the whole thing. And then, of course, we still have the other players, Orbital ATKs out there. Uh, heck, even even Firefly, which is a group of folks that used to work for SpaceX, they're making their own booster. In fact, they had an engine test not too long ago, and that went fairly well. So there are new players coming on the field. So good time. Things will kind of sort of hash their way out. But I think there are more players coming on the field. And the more players that are on the field, the lower the costs are. So let's just support what's going on out there. We're in the middle of a, of a big change going on in the launch services area. So you know, strap yourselves in and just see what, what happens with all of this. But I think ultimately the big winners here will be the people not only that need to launch payloads, but also the U.S. taxpayer that will also be launching payloads on this thing, whether it be they be of uh, military or surveillance nature or genuine uh, weather satellites, communication satellites, and so on. Well, I mean, this is the entire point of opening up the commercial space reality. Like, that, this is the whole idea. And ULA went from having basically an American monopoly to now they're going to have a ton of competitors. That The list is only going to grow. So it's just a complete sea change. And we all knew this was coming. ULA knew this was coming. Obviously, their parent companies knew this. And so... The thing is, now we're actually there. Now we're not just talking about the fantasies. Now we're actually there. The question is, are they going to be nimble enough to go ahead and try to do something that they've never had to do before? Well, that's exactly what happens every time you have disruptive technology and, and a disruptive influx of new businesses. You know, it, It's happened in every industry. If you look at everything that's happened because of the internet, for example, to all kinds of companies from retail to music to we're going through just this hugely disruptive time that, and you know, it's funny cause it's like wild to see all the things we were talking about just a couple of years ago, starting to come to fruition, including it's a risky time to be a big, not very nimble company. And you have to learn to get light on your feet quick. The analogy I was going to use was uh, Ma Bell when that broke up, mm-hmm. you know, it was the same thing. Now Ma Bell had to do something it never had to do before, which is market itself and it really didn't turn out to be all that good at it. In fact, it, essentially what was left of it was bought by SBC, which now is today's AT&T. So the launch services industry right now is trying to shake itself out, and a new industry or a new world essentially is being born out of it. And uh, I think ultimately the, the beneficiary is going to be 
the individual that needs to get something to low Earth orbit, and they will be paying a little bit less than they are now, and probably less and less as things go forward. Yep, so obviously there's a lot going on with that, and in fact, with all those launch players that we're talking about, I think we're going to be getting into almost all of them a little bit later in this episode, uh, especially the U.S. ones, so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, we're going to talk about some news that actually just came out on the night of this recording. Now, as you know, there are flight controllers working around the clock, keeping an eye on everything going on aboard the International Space Station. Now, today, NASA announced five brand new flight directors to be leading mission control as they monitor the International Space Station, maybe even eventually as they work outward. Now, normally this wouldn't be as big of a story, but the names of the five people, someone may stick out to you. There's Anthony Vareja, Mary Lawrence, Rick Henfling, Vincent LaCourt, and Timothy T.J. Kramer. Does that last name stick out to anybody? In case you don't know, T.J. Kramer was a former astronaut who has become the first ever astronaut to become a flight director now. So big congratulations to T.J., a New York native, actually from around where I am. And actually, I would like to point out, he was the first astronaut to tweet live from space, from up in the space station, and without doing a relay through someone on Earth, he actually tweeted from there. And he was also the first astronaut to become certified as a payload operations director in Huntsville, Alabama. Yep. And it'll be interesting to see what he does, uh, because now he's, and how he does, excuse me, because now he's got a ton of experience behind him. And he's going to be talking to folks that, well, he's been there. He's been on the ISS. He's experienced spaceflight. So I think he's going to be bringing in a, a ton of experience and a ton of grand uh, insights that maybe some other flight directors may not have. So it'll be interesting to have him on console and in the big, big chair. So TJ Kramer, congratulations. And I, I do want to say for an astronaut, he has an incredible diversity of background. He made a point of learning everything he can learn about ISS operations. So I just can't imagine a better choice. And to echo Gene, congratulations. It's a great appointment. Oh, definitely. And if I remember correctly, there was a bunch of uh, people at the STS-135 launch who got to talk to him while he was in space via the satellite phone. And now his job is going to be talking to everybody aboard the space station, or at least directing people to talk to everyone aboard the space station. So yeah, it's a big congrats to TJ Kramer on that one. Speaking of the International Space Station, we talked before about a certain experiment aboard the International Space Station. Cassie brought it up, and I believe she has some results. And I'm not going to spoil what this experiment is, because uh, it's going to make me thirsty otherwise. <laughs> yeah, well, um, it is actually talking about my absolute favorite beverage on, and I guess now off this planet. We're talking about the Ardbeg Space Whiskey. A few weeks ago, I was talking about both the Ardbeg and Centauri experiments in space on alcohol maturation. Well, the Ardbeg experiment was the first, and it came back almost a year ago. Actually, just over a year ago, excuse me. And the testing is finally done. The results are in. The whiskey has been tasted and chemically analyzed. And now we have some idea of what happens when you try to age whiskey in microgravity. Now, for a little refresher, this launched back in October 30th, 2011, atop a Soyuz in a progress. And then it came back in September 12th, 2014 on Soyuz TMA-12M. 
Now, NanoRacks had the idea for this experiment. So what they sent up were these little vials that they call mix sticks that hold, in this case, whiskey distillate, which is distilled whiskey before it has been matured in oak barrels. And so it's extremely high proof. And then at the other end were little bits of white American oak charred barrels, bourbon barrels, which would be used normally as the barrels for aging the Ardbeg. So what happened was after the experiment had some time to acclimatize, they broke the glass in the middle of the vial, exposing the distillate to the oak. Well, they stayed that way for 971 days on orbit, while a matching set of samples spent their time at the Ardbeg Distillery. They were opened at the same time, which must have been awfully fun for their master chemist at Ardbeg. At the end of the experiment, everything went to Houston along with the Ardbeg team. And what they found is pretty interesting. They originally did a gas chromatogram with flame ionization detection. They looked at the major volatile congeners, which congeners are the chemical compounds that develop in fermentation and maturation, and they create the flavors in the whiskey. What they found originally was that there wasn't that much of a difference between the ISS and control samples at all. These were the major components initially they were looking at, and the compounds that contribute the powerful, smoky, medicinal flavors that Ardbeg's known for, very few differences. However, then when they did a high-pressure liquid chromatogram with multiple wavelength detector, when they used that on it, they found that the wood-derived congeners, it was a whole different thing. The space samples had basically blocked getting some of the components of the oak into the distillate, where on Earth, lots of those flavors came through. Some of them flowed into the distillate exactly the same as on Earth, and some did not. So they finally did a taste test, <laughs> of course, um, known as a triangle test, where they were given three samples of whiskey, two of one either Earth or ISS, and one of the other, without knowing which they had two of. And a group of master tasters sampled all of them, described them, and then they took all the results and found the similarities between the tasting notes. They found that the control sample, the aroma was very woody with hints of cedar wood, sweet smoke, and aged balsamic vinegar. Hints of raisins, treacle toffee, vanilla, and burnt oranges very reminiscent of an aged Ardbeg style. The taste had a dry palate with woody balsamic flavors, sweet smoke, and clove oil, a distant fruitiness, prunes or dates, some charcoal, and antiseptic notes. The aftertaste is long, lingering, and typically Ardbeg with flavors of gentle smoke, briarwood, tar, and some sweet creamy fudge. Meanwhile, the ISS sample smelled like Intense and rounded, with notes of antiseptic smoke, rubber, smoked fish, and a curious perfumed note, like cassis or violet. Powerful woody notes, hints of graphite, and some vanilla. This then leads into a very earthy slash soil notes, a savory beefy aroma, and then hints of rum and raisin-flavored ice cream. The taste was a very focused flavor profile, with smoked fruits, prunes, raisins, sugar, plums, and cherries, earthy peat smoke, peppermint, honest seed, cinnamon, and smoked bacon or hickory-smoked ham. The aftertaste is pungent, intense, and long, with hints of wood, antiseptic lozenges, and rubbery smoke. So you can see a lot of the antiseptic flavors and the sort of minerally flavors 
that Ardbeg is known for came through in both samples, but the ISS sample got a lot less of the vanillins and vanillic acid, so it got a lot less of the sweetness. So now they're hoping to take these results and develop further experiments, again in conjunction with Nanorex. They want to basically start nailing down exactly what compounds bring out what flavors using the differences between what was matured on orbit and what was matured on Earth. Well, the whole thing, Cassie, if I recall, they didn't really understand what the meddling process was all about. And did they kind of get some insights into that at all? They are just starting to. They said that, and I highly recommend, we'll put the link in the show notes, that everybody go watch the video attached to this because they actually explain a lot of this quite well. This was an initial experiment with a tiny, tiny sample size, so there was very little that they could play around with. This was basically an experiment to set the stage for further experiments. Now, the Centauri experiment is a little bit more detailed in the actual maturation process. That's the one that is in the low convection laboratory. And so they're going and they used different forms of alcohol. So they're looking a little bit more at the actual maturation process across different types of liquors. Whereas the Ardbeg experiment is specifically looking at the effects between wood and whiskey. Stay tuned. Well, if they need testers in the future, you know they can always contact us, right? I was rooting for that. Can I just say, I was reading in the results, they mentioned all of the chemical tests were done both by the Ardbeg team and an independent laboratory, except one detailed set was done only by the independent laboratory because they had the equipment for it. But the tasting was only done by the Ardbeg team because there was such a small sample size. They could only have so many tasters. <laughs> Well, Ardbeg, our email is mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com if you want us to get involved. Send up some more next time. <laughs> All right. So then to finish off our quick news bites, if you can call them quick, we are going to talk about the moon, in particular the next lunar eclipse. In case you're unaware, the next lunar eclipse is on... On September 27th through September 28th of this year. In fact, the lunar eclipse itself, or at least the time that the moon will spend in uh, totality, is about one hour and 12 minutes. The eclipse, at least on the eastern seaboard, is scheduled to start at 8.11 p.m. Sunday, September 27th. The uh, maximum eclipse, or the period of totality, will be at 10.47 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and the show will be over by Monday morning at 1.22 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So if you want to go ahead and stay up and see a grand celestial show that you don't have to pay anything for, go on outside and take a look. It's going to be a magnificent experience. Go for it. Well, I know I, for one, I'm definitely going to make a point of seeing this one because getting to see an eclipse on the perigee full moon, that's an amazing opportunity. Indeed. And by the way, folks, contrary to popular belief, the world is not coming to an end. There is no big giant asteroid heading this way. I know there have been rumors all over the place. In fact, uh, Veronica McGregor's uh, Asteroid Watch Twitter account has been absolutely bombarded with questions of that nature. But don't worry, gang, there is not any golden BB coming at us. Don't worry. Don't spend your 401ks yet. Just chill out. Nothing's coming at us. 
So if you can, definitely go outside and take a look, because this is the last lunar eclipse until 2018, so about three years. So definitely go outside and take a look. Like Gene mentioned before, it's supposed to start around 8 Eastern, which is around 0 UTC. The full part of the eclipse is supposed to occur starting at 10.11 p.m. Eastern time, which is 2.11 UTC, and it's supposed to end at about 1 a.m. Eastern or about 5 UTC. Anywhere else in the world, we included UTC finally, so hopefully you can figure out when that is. But if you have the chance to, definitely go outside and take a look. Alrighty then, so now we're going to move into some of the big topics that we want to cover tonight. And the first one is about Orion. As you recall, Talking Space was there covering the EFT-1 launch, the first test flight of the Orion capsule. They had said that the next flight will be in 2021, or EM-1 and all of that and all that fun stuff. Well, it looks like the first big flight of Orion may be actually closer to 2023 from what I've heard. Is that correct? Well, that is the first piloted launch. It looks like EM-2 will be scheduled for no later than April of 2023. Now, there was a telecon. Sawyer, uh, I guess it was, if I'm reading this exactly, it was back on uh, Thursday, September 17th, to try to go ahead and go over the progress that NASA is making on Orion. It looks like EM-1 is right on target, however, and a lot of the performance data that they were able to glean from the Exploration Flight Test 1 back in December of 2014 has already been incorporated into the Exploration 1 mission. And they're hoping to build on that experience for Exploration Mission 2. Now, from what I'm reading direct from the NASA website, astronauts will fly on Orion for the first time on EM-2. And they will go ahead and continue to build toward that. A decision here commits NASA's total development baseline of $6.77 billion from October 2015 through the first crewed mission, EM-2 and a commitment to be ready for launch with astronauts no later than April 2023. Now, Sawyer, you did point out at the beginning of this conversation that was not really going to be the case. Everybody thought that this was going to go, at, uh, or at least the first piloted mission, was going to go 2021. And NASA is saying that they are still going to target 2021, but realistically speaking, because of what, has been characterized as unknown unknowns, if you can follow what I'm trying to say there. They're just basically saying they're gonna they may run into technical problems that, well, they're just currently not seeing yet in the development of Orion. So they're hedging their bets. They're saying about twenty twenty three, April, no later. Bill Gerstenmeyer essentially said that he's not gonna get worried about all these schedules to quote him, we can get where we want to be and can have a, uh, a very functional capability that's affordable, and we can continue to fly these exploration missions that will ultimately get us ready to go to Mars. And even with the delay, he said that you can kind of fast forward a little bit, and with my operational background, you can see the future and how we can really rely and, and use this hardware in pretty amazing ways, close quote. 
So, again, are we talking budgetary problems here? Are we talking technical problems here? I think we might be talking about both. They're, they're trying to see where the road is going to take them. Uh, you have to remember, too, we're going to be having an election soon. Priorities may change. And uh, I think they're, they're hedging their bets in that instance, too. Budget has been, well, it's been kind to both the Ryan and SLS, but those numbers may go down depending on what new Congress comes in. So I, I think they're actually trying to hedge their bets here. Did we see this coming? Yeah, probably. But to me, this is kind of sad if you look at it. I mean, we originally were targeting uh, around 2021. And from what I understand, we're not giving up on that date. But 2021 would really mark 10 years since since Atlantis landed. And uh, I'm hoping that we can get at least its really true replacement up there at this when uh, we can celebrate the 10-year landing of Atlantis. But uh, I'm not sure that that's going to happen yet. It really all depends on what the priorities are budget-wise and what the priorities are from a technological standpoint. I think that's the one that's really got them worried. But, Sawyer, if I'm going to invoke this for a moment, if I recall exactly, I'll bring you back to April when we were over at uh, NEF this past year, and... Bill Garstenmeyer said, this is really, truly a journey. Uh, this isn't a sprint. This isn't sort of like we've got to get there at this date. And that it. It's not really a date-driven thing. It's more of a, a slow, methodical march, if you will, to Mars. And Orion, as some of our listeners may know, is going to be a linchpin to that march. I don't know. There, there's still a lot of going back and forth, back and forth, and from the typical players to one individual's insight you know, believes that it's the administration's behind this delay by, quote, simply unwilling to provide enough funding to meet the 2021 date. And uh, I have a, another gentleman that's basically saying essentially the same thing and uh, has been super critical of the money spent on both Orion and the space launch system. Personally, I sort of expected this, but I'm a little... Yeah, you know, I'm a little dejected, but we'll see what happens. I know they're still targeting 2021, but realistically, they're saying a 2023 launch date. So, stay tuned. Let's let's hang in there and let's see what transpires with all of this. I don't know. Thoughts, anybody, on this whole announcement? Yeah, Gene. Coincidentally, today I just listened to a podcast that I mentioned a few times, Omega Tau podcast. Mm-hmm. And their last episode was number 181. It, with the title of it is Why Mega Projects Fail, parentheses, and what to do about it. And the interview subject was a professor from the Oxford School of Business. And it was really interesting to hear how complicated this is and how there's dynamics of psychology that enter into these projects and their projections and their plans and why they're often overstated and uh, in terms of what they're going to do, they tend to be over budget and to run over time. And, and they just make the statement in their show notes that over 90% of such projects fail. And, um, you know, it, it really is a difficult thing. And the fact that they're saying 2021, remember in uh, 2011, how dismayed we all felt with the last flight of the space shuttle mm-hmm. and the estimates at the time of, of when SLS was going to pick up and start flying and 
how long it was going to take us to get a U.S. designed and, and run ride up to station. If you think today, well, gee, it's 2015 and we're still not there, it gets even more discouraging. Hate to throw the, the discouraging hat in the ring, but you know, I, I know it'll happen. I know things will go through, but good grief, it takes so long. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing, too, is we still have commercial crew to worry about. Uh, we have both the SpaceX Crew Dragon and the CST-100 Starliner that Boeing is constructing waiting in the wings, and even that is, is just not being funded at a, at a healthy level, it's almost to the point where Administrator Bolden just a few weeks ago had to tell Russia that we have to renew the contract to the tune of $81 million a seat. So apparently we've decided that we want to pay somebody else the money rather than invest it here, which to me makes absolutely no bleeping sense whatsoever. The other thing I'm going to pull out of here with this is that I've noticed with this particular story in general that there's been a lot of clickbait going on with some journalists here. Uh, there was one outfit that's based out in Buffalo that tried to link this in loosely, I guess, with the premiere of the movie The Martian that's coming on uh, uh, October 2nd, I believe. And they tried to say that, oh, NASA announced that they're launching a human mission to Mars in 2023. And I'm like, that's not what they said. I mean, to me, that is just absolutely off the wall. And I, I was wondering, where the devil did they get that? And it, it's just, I, I'm just really, really tired of all the clickbait that's going on out there. The, what NASA was just basically trying to explain was because of all the technical problems and the budgetary constraints and so on and so forth, the best laid plans of mice and men may be torn asunder for a little while, and we may not get there in 2021. They didn't say that they were going to Mars in 2023. And it's mixed messages like this that really, really have a tendency to cause a problem out there with public perception and so on. It makes our job collectively here, the ones that, that actually cover space news, extraordinarily more difficult. And because now we have to go ahead not only to report what's going on, try to throw some context into this, but also try to go ahead and say, no, this is not what NASA said. No, this is not what was going on. And it's folks like this that make our job a heck of a lot harder. I had a conversation about this with somebody offline and they basically said, look, if the mainstream media covered aerospace news and spaceflight news in general and NASA and all this, the way we cover political races and so on, I think we'd probably be in a better place right now with what's happening. And I'm forced to agree with them. You know, I, I would love to see that level of coverage, but you do also have to remember that as, as somebody who does follow a lot of political news, they get stuff wrong all the time in politics, too. A big problem now is just sloppy reporting. Right. Like this Buffalo piece, it's just sloppy. It's like somebody just was like, oh, this is the program that's going to take us to Mars, and they're saying that it's going to launch man. And then they didn't read the fine print. Right. <laughs> that because people who aren't, obsessively into space have a tendency to not understand what they read about space if they do come across something it's like oh well this is for the mars mission and so that means we're going to launch then when of course we understand that there's a lot more to going to mars than just the capsule's ready <laughs> right 
<laughs> Above all, guys, just do your homework. That's all. That's all I'm asking of my, my my brethren out there. Just just do your homework. There's a there's a bunch of folks out there that do, but there's the, some that just don't. But getting back to the Orion story here again, I I don't know what your reaction was when I saw the 2023 date. I was like, oh no. Hey Sawyer, why don't you chime in? My first reaction when I saw it, to be perfectly honest, meh, not surprised, quote unquote, but. Yeah, I, I kind of expect that at this point with NASA. I don't believe any of the dates because it takes forever to do anything. Because A, it's government red tape. And B, you know, you've got a million people with their hands in the pot all trying to make one soup. And in the end, you're going to get something that, yeah, you can call it soup, but it's not what you originally had in the recipe book. So, oh, I like that analogy. I just came up with that. But that's what it really is. And that's what happened with the space shuttle. And that's what's happening again with SLS. I just do have to go back, by the way, to the clickbait. It could have been worse. It could have been NASA just made an announcement about Mars, and you'll never guess what it is. Could have been worse, just saying that. <laughs> That's very true, sir. <laughs> sir, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, you were saying that this is government-run on this, that, and the other thing. Do you think the commercial folks could have done any better on this? To be perfectly honest, take a look at SpaceX. Take a look at what they're trying to do with, you know, eventually getting their way to Mars and their manned thing. I mean, how many years ago did SpaceX say, oh, we're going to build a manned rocket that will eventually, you know, take people to the ISS and then on to Mars? They're planning for like 2023 to get to Mars, which, again, is ridiculous. But keep in mind, SpaceX already has a capsule pretty much just like NASA does. But they also kind of have a rocket, too. They're planning on doing manned launches by 2017. They've been going at it for you know, a little bit longer than the end of the space shuttle program. But when you think about it, their turnaround time to manned launches has been very quick. Yeah, but to play devil's advocate for a little bit, SpaceX is grounded right now. That is very true. <laughs> so, and, you know, they're, that, they, they're they still are not their... either, so... Oh, no, I never said that. They're definitely not infallible at SpaceX. And the thing is, SpaceX obviously does have these Mars ambitions, but they also have these other goals, including actually like commercial goals of making money and things that make the entire ethos a little bit different when you think about timing. I'm a huge fan of NASA. I think that there's a lot of people at NASA who have job titles that may not look as intrinsically important as they are, that I believe are intrinsically important. But it is still a bloated government agency. It's also working with contractors who, in some cases, are rather big. And so Sawyer's comment about how there's so many cooks involved in making this soup, it is a little easier when you have a streamlined, nimble, here we go with that word again, nimble company to push, 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 push. There's even down to the fact of how many hours you can make somebody work is a completely different world between actual government employees and people working at a business that's contracted by the government. So these are they're different. I, I'm trying to remember the word. They have a. They have. They just have this different ethos, this different way of going about things. And there's advantages and disadvantages to both. When it comes to going to Mars, I think it's going to ultimately be governments doing it before commercial is actually going to get onto Mars. I really do believe that. But any government project is going to have certain layers of added time, added inefficiency. It's the nature of the beast. When was Falcon Heavy originally supposed to be launched? Anybody remember? 
I know there there was a one point target for this year. I think there was originally also a twenty twelve target. Yes, that's I what I, right. that's exactly yeah. what I was talking about. That actually yeah. should have launched out of Vandenberg Air Force Base back in twenty twelve, and you know that that point has come and gone. Now they've also said that they're going to launch in March off of Pad thirty nine A. I will see that when it rolls out, but I'll believe it when it rolls out on, in March. Well, but the thing is, a lot of the people who were watching them also thought those dates were really, really, really ambitious. And that that's where you get into the thing about message versus reality, which we were just talking about as well. Obviously, space is hard. And I remember seeing some of SpaceX's projections and just laughing back when the shuttle program was ending and people were starting to talk about the next milestones. And I remember a lot of us were just laughing at like, that's the, that's there's no way that those are the dates that are. <laughs> that those things are happening. <laughs> Again, Cassie, to reinforce your point, I don't think anybody is going to Mars without government involved, period. I completely because agree with that. Because that's where, uh, unfortunately, Mars, a Mars shot, is going to be awfully expensive. And it's a whole different beast. It's a whole different beast from going to this going to the ISS going anywhere in earth orbit it's just a whole different beast it's going to require so much more effort and so many more brains i think it's going to be an international thing because i don't even think that a government agency can handle organizing the entire thing i mean obviously it will ultimately come down to a group organizing it but in the sense of it's going to take so much brilliance and so many different pieces to come together and obviously we have working relationships with all sorts of countries i think mars is going to just be the biggest thing that humanity ever did and it's going to take an awful lot of humanity to make it happen yeah i mean there's going to be a coalition of countries really that are going to get get us there already is yeah and I mean, the ISS is probably going to be the starting point, but we'll we'll see how post-ISS that goes and who decides to come with us and who decides to, to go off and do their own thing. But uh, I, I still say that it's going to be a concern of nations that's going to get us to Mars, and it's not going to be one single corporate entity. I hate to burst the bubbles over at Horthon, but uh, you're, I don't think they're going anywhere without NASA's help. Hey, they want to prove me wrong, have at it. That, that'd be awesome. I, I would be thrilled to be proven wrong on this stuff, but I really agree with you. Same. But uh, again, 2023 is what it sounds like it's going to be. If it is 2021, great. And it comes down to realistic goals, and pretty much every single space company out there has had this happen to them, said it's going to be one date, it ends up being another. But as long as it launches, that's what matters. And if you have a different opinion on it, send it to us. Email mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com, Twitter at TalkingSpace, on our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash TalkingSpace. We also have a Google Plus page. Feel free to send it anywhere there because we love hearing opposing opinions. Alrighty then. So, continuing along. Well, the NASA Inspector General released an interesting report about Orbital ATK with their continuing to resume launches to the International Space Station, scheduled for later this year, and then their rocket scheduled for later next year. But what did they have to say about that? Thanks, sir. Uh, yes, indeed. The, uh, the NASA Inspector General Paul Martin released a 46-page report on where Orbital ATK is in their eyes going forward with the next flights. And in a way, he kind of sounded the alarm bell a little bit. 
And in, in his eyes, or at least in the NASA Inspector General's office, orbital ATK is what they call, quote, an uphill struggle to resume deliveries to the International Space Station after the sad events over at Wallops Island because of what they are terming significant risks which include having never flown the Cygnus spacecraft on board United Launch Alliance's Atlas V. That's one of the things that they bring up. They also bring up the fact that, two NASA missed some interesting opportunities for cost savings going along. In fact, they actually mentioned that NASA had to go ahead and outlay about $20 million, $5 million of which I think has actually been paid, uh, to repair Launchpad 0A, where NASA was the customer, and because of the political kerfuffle that happened in Virginia as a result of uh, who's going to pay for the repairs, uh, NASA had to step in and basically, in, in their own interests, really, and step in and try to settle some things. I'm going to take umbrage with Mr. Martin on on one point, and that is. Uh, Flying Cygnus on another booster other than the Antares, which hopefully, knock on wood, will come back to us in March of next year, although I think that's actually fluctuating too as far as the target date is concerned. We'll just have to keep an eye on that. But Orbital ATK has got a long history of integrating satellites and spacecraft onto the Atlas V. Uh, which they've used several times to either boost uh, communication satellites, to boost space exploration satellites, to uh, put uh, any kind of plethora of, of satellite uh, breeds on board. And they've never had any problems integrating that those satellites. So I'm trying to figure out, how is Cygnus any different from mounting on an Atlas V than, say, a communication satellite they may build for a military customer or a weather satellite they may build for NOAA or a deep space satellite they may build for NASA because Orbital ATK is in the business of building satellites and they have a, a long history of integrating these things onto, onto other boosters. They put things on Ariane space vehicles. They put things on United Launch Alliance vehicles. So they've got a pretty good history and a pretty good track record of getting things to work. So this shouldn't, this is a no-brainer for them. So I didn't quite understand that mentality there. Mark, you had a little bit of something to say here, and I believe it was in a positive light as far as what's been going on here. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and let you take the take the stage here. Well, first of all, you know, an OIG report is something that's not just, uh, you know, cut and pasted from previous documents. It's something that's very thoroughly worked on and and you got to respect it. And I mean, let me let me tell you about a, a launch and you'll see why I've got some of those same concerns as to the risk and success and the concerns for something going wrong. OK, uh, let's, let's take you back a few years. This was a launch of the Atlas V series five, five, one, and it had the five meter payload fairing, five solid rocket motors attached to the first stage. Uh, it was powered by an RD-180 first stage. The Centaur on the second stage was an RL-10A Aerojet Rocketdyne engine. And this had the first use of a third stage on an Atlas. 
And here you go, more and more complexity, more and more things to go wrong. So how do you think it worked out? Well, the third stage they said was needed for the increased energy for this high performance requirements of the mission. It was to be the fastest ever launched, speeding away from Earth at approximately 36,000 miles an hour on our trajectory to take it more than 3 billion miles towards its primary science target. Now, wait a second. Maybe I got this wrong. Maybe this is okay, integrating complex things the first time ever, never done before in a sequence. Whoever heard of a three-stage Atlas V? Well, doggone, the launch outcome was a success. You may think back, what was this first ever Atlas V, 551, that was launched? When was it? And what in the world was the payload? January 19th, 2006. Am I ringing a bell? Payload, New Horizons. Did it work? Doggone right. So do I have a concern about Atlas and ULA integrating an orbital Cygnus capsule for a payload? Not a concern in the world. I'm with you, Gene. Yeah, exactly. I just didn't see the problem. And they're going to do the right thing by this. And by the way, just to, uh, in all fairness, the NASA IG report that they issued for Orbital ATK here, there's another one that's being researched right now, taking a look at the SpaceX accident. Probably will have some other interesting findings. So we'll be on the lookout for that one coming in the next uh, few weeks. Exactly. I mean, Although the inspector general's job and that kind of job, I feel like, is to find the things that could go wrong. And especially if you're at NASA after everything that has gone wrong with past commercial ventures, you are going to have some concerns. Obviously, there really aren't any, and I think we can all agree upon that, but that's their job. Of course, Talking Space will be there covering that first launch aboard the Atlas, so uh, stay tuned for that. Hopefully coming up a little later this year. All right, so continuing along then, we've talked about SpaceX, we've talked about Orbital ATK and all their private adventures and their private launches. Well, there's someone else getting into the game, and of course we've talked about Blue Origins before with Jeff Bezos, but now they've basically set up where they're going to be launching from, and that is Florida. That's right, sir. Launch Complex 36, which has seen its its share of historic launches, a lot of the interplanetary spacecraft of some note have launched from that facility there specifically i believe the pioneer spacecraft on their long voyages to to jupiter and then finally to the outer solar system they launch from uh, launch complex 36 but now soon uh, you'll see the roar of probably the the be4 from uh, launch complex 36 there over at uh, Cape Canaveral Air Force Station because Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin has decided to set up shop there. Not only will they be setting up shop and launching from there, they will actually be building from there, which means that a lot of the vehicles that they will build and fly will be built at that facility. There will be a engine test stand not too far away from there where they will be testing the BE-4 for later use. And this is a huge deal for Florida, especially a few weeks ago in light of what happened there. Senator Bill Nelson basically saying to Space Florida, which is essentially trying to privatize some of these old launch pads, that the Shiloh area that they wanted to build on, they essentially wanted to build the Wallops Island Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport style spaceport in this area of uh, the Kennedy Space Center that's known as Shiloh. 
they did not uh, win that, and they think they still think it's not winnable, or at least uh, Senator Bill Nelson does. Face Florida thinks otherwise, but uh, to be honest, I, I just don't don't see it happening. This, however, is a big deal. They're taking current stuff that's been you know sort of dormant since about 2004. I think the last launch from there was, which was an Atlas vehicle. They're taking this old, old launch pad and, and making it do some new tricks and, in essence, bringing some jobs to Central Florida as well and not in the hamburger flipping variety either. We're talking some serious technology jobs, and that's a good thing all the way around. Uh, Jeff Bezos says, too, according to what I'm looking at in Florida today here, he says he's not really worried about competitors like SpaceX and United Launch Alliance because he sees enough opportunities for everybody. In fact, um, another quote, and this is from uh, Eileen Collins, CNBC, uh, saying that even with all of this going on, projects that Blue Origin is undertaking and that SpaceX is undertaking, uh, she still expects that NASA will still be you know, the leader or the 800-pound gorilla, if you will, you know, contracting with SpaceX and Blue Origin and Orbital ATK for future launches, but they still see NASA as, as essentially the, the prime player in that particular area. So it will be fasten your seatbelts. The commercial space area is starting to really, really percolate. And again, as we brought this up earlier in the episode, the paradigm's shifting. I hate using that overused evil corporate buzzword, but um, I'm going to. And it will be really, really beneficial, I think, again, to anybody that wants to get payloads to low-Earth orbit, whether you be the U.S. taxpayer, either by military or by NOAA or by NASA, or you be a communications company like you know, DirecTV, DISH, and, and all those, uh, you know, Cirrus and all those guys. Or, hey, even if you make whiskey and want to send some to space. That's true. <laughs> this is good for everybody. That's true. <laughs> and it also is very exciting to see Space Florida filling more slots, getting more companies in there, because we all spent a lot of time down there towards the end of the space shuttle program, and we've all heard the tales about what it was like post-Apollo. That's an area that's always been very, very volatile. If you work, if you manage to get a job working there, it didn't mean you were going to keep a job working there, not through any fault of your own, but just because the nature of the place has been very, it's busy and filled with people in life or else it's completely not. And this is building something that's actually sustainable for an area that desperately needs something sustainable. So it's great from a human level, from a societal level as well. Exactly. And again, we're not talking about, you know, we're not talking about really menial jobs here. We're talking about, you know, high tech jobs. Which will also produce more menial jobs for the people around there who need them. It's good for everybody. Because if you were there in 2011, the malls were closed. Everything was closing. I just think this is such great news. Every time a new company gets there, I just want to celebrate. Yeah, and that, that's that's exactly what I was about to say. This, this is really, really going to be a, a, a boon for Central Florida, or at least a, a boon for the for the space industry there that had really had taken it on the chin of late. But it's also uh, good for the I four tech corridor because they're going to have more clients in the space industry. So, I mean, Florida needs this really badly. 
yeah, it's starting to see a resurgence. A lot of jobs are starting to come back, and mm-hmm. and we'll just again, this is a grand grand deal, and it'll be good to see some folks that uh, used to work on those four birds that are now in museums uh, actually getting back and and in there and uh, doing the jobs they're supposed to be doing. Yep, indeed, yeah. Exactly. It'll be exciting to see the Space Coast come back to life with all of these things coming up that we talked about tonight. So um, space is not dead, folks. Believe it or not, the shuttle program's over. Everything is still going on. still very, very busy. And uh, that's why we thank you for listening to Talking Space to get all these space news stories that you won't hear in most other regular media outlets. And with that, I think that's the perfect way to bring this episode to its conclusion. And on that note, I think that's the perfect note to end this episode and bring it to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. As one of my favorite movies ends, The Human Adventure is just beginning. (laughs) Very nice. Thank you as well for joining us, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Kreflas. Thank you so much and exciting times to come. Oh, yes. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Hey, it's good to be here, and once again, I know I've learned more than a few things, so thanks, everybody. Oh, yes, indeed. I think we all do, and that's part of why I love doing this show as well. But in case you missed last week's episode, uh, we are now on a first and third week uh, of every month release date. So, unless, of course, something special happens or there's some major breaking news or it happens to be our sixth anniversary like last week. So that means that we will be back on the week of October 5th. And we hope to see you all then. Don't forget, we still have our hashtag going on, hashtag TS6. Feel free to send us in some of your favorite moments of Talking Space from our last six years through our email, Twitter, Facebook, or Google Plus pages, as we mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, We'd love to hear from you guys about that, and we hope you'll join us next episode. Until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. (laughs) 